Hi, this is Andrea Harkins at themartialartswoman.com. You are exploring the culture, adventure, and impact of martial arts with Sifu T.W. Smith. Hey, this is Tim Smith at Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Think about this for a moment. Columbus was the first person to discover America and discover that the Earth was round. Captain Cook was the first European to discover Australia's East Coast. The Shaolin created many styles of martial arts. You know, the problem with all three of those statements is that they're in the pursuit of the origin of something. For example, who was the first nationally recognized Wing Chun man? Well, we discussed all of that in episode 203, and this is a continuation of the first nationally recognized Wing Chun man, the assassin. But this is going to carry us a little bit further down this aspect of Wing Chun, one of the more popular modern styles of Chinese martial arts. And Professor Ben Junkins over at Kung Fu Tea, who wrote this essay, states that the problem with these questions is they lead you into the myths of being first. It is wise to be distrustful of any attempts to locate the first instance of anything popular or famous. Dr. Junkin states that, generally speaking, those quests misunderstand the way that social world works. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. And when you really start to dig into claims of absolute originality, you invariably find many other sources of inspiration. Within the martial arts, these sorts of claims are even more problematic as they tend to have more to do with marketing than they do with actual history. Or they're trying to reinforce the authenticity of some lineage than actually trying to understand the past. Yet and still, when properly framed, discussions of the earliest appearance of something can be helpful. This is particularly true when these discussions shed light on how some obscure practice was initially understood, or how a community was originally understood by the rest of society. As I was reading through this, it reminded me of an interesting example. What if we were discussing Adam and Eve? When did their story first appear? As Ph.D. Professor Phil Zuckerman explains, much research points to the story of Adam and Eve being written at around 1500 B.C. But what if we changed this frame? We weren't looking for the story of Adam and Eve, but we changed the frame slightly to, what is the story of the first humans? Here is what you would find. Professor Zuckerman explains that the original story of humans wasn't about Adam and Eve. It was about Inanna and Dumuzi. He writes, quote, Their story takes place in the Middle East thousands of years ago. There was a tree known as the Hulupu tree. It stood in a holy garden. Inanna, a God-fearing woman, took care of the Hulupu tree. But then a serpent made its nest in the tree. It was a wicked serpent that could not be charmed. And then along came Dumuzi. He was a shepherd. He and Inanna fell in love, and they became lovers in the garden by the tree with the serpent in it. There's much more to the story of this ancient couple, but we could stop right here and ask ourselves, does any of that sound familiar? You've got a man and a woman, a garden and tree, a serpent. As any Bible reader can recognize, the setup is strikingly similar to the story of Adam and Eve. But guess what? The story of Inanna and Dumuzi was written around 
2000 BC, while the story of Adam and Eve found in the Bible was written again 500 years later in 1500 BC. By simply changing the frame slightly, we can get a different result and what appears to be, let's say, a borrowed story. The goal of this episode is to explore the three earliest printed appearances of the term Wing Chun, and as well as an important photograph that occurs during this process of early Wing Chun practice. You should note during this episode that none of these passages were authored by Wing Chun students. All of the earliest published mentions of the art were provided by outsiders. This one fact grants contemporary researchers valuable clues as to what was generally known about the style and how it was understood by other traditional Chinese martial arts practitioners in the early 20th century. It will also be important to note that the discussion of appearances of the name Wing Chun will be only in commercially published and distributed works. There is absolutely no attempt here to comment on hand-copied documents or a singular artifact. The reason for this are twofold. First, as Douglas Wilde noted in his important discussion of newly discovered Tachi Chuan texts, it is typically difficult to establish the province and age of these documents. Often this requires a specific type of scholarly expertise and direct physical access to the manuscript in question. Dating is also difficult because martial arts students continued to make these hand-copied versions of text up through the 1960s, making them seemingly older than what they are. So we're going to be looking at professional documents, not personal homemade documents. The second reason for this is that we know that forgeries have appeared before in various martial arts cultures. As such, the academic bar for accepting new document discoveries, especially on controversial topics, is high. These newfound, air quote, lost classics often don't pass the sniff test of the academics, thank goodness. But beyond those specific difficulties, discussions that occurred in very small groups of people, let's say in fight book traditions, with only a single master and a student, just are not as interesting as those that shed light on what the martial arts community as a whole believed. Establishing what everyone knew or aspired to know gives us a clear glimpse into the world that gave rise to Wing Chun as a social movement. So we're going to take the wider view rather than the internal history of a single lineage or school. Professor Juckin states that as a student of social history, these are the sorts of discussions that he finds most compelling. It is the main reason why Ben keeps going back to newspapers, magazines, novels, and other sorts of ephemera when trying to understand the social origins of these fighting systems. The full focus of episode 203, which I encourage you to go back and listen to, was on Wen Shankai, along with the understanding of how challenging it is for academics to study a legend and find several components of inarguable truth inside of a legend. This is where the first reference of Wing Chun occurs in 1919, which fits with what we know about the development of the art. After declining in popularity locally during the 1910s, Wing Chun's public profile really began to take off throughout the Pearl River Delta during the 1920s. This was the decade when the once small style became a fixture in the regional martial arts landscape. In KFP 203, we discussed how in 1919 the Shanghai-based Jingwu Wu Association 
published their 10th anniversary commemorative yearbook. This work was equal parts family album, ideological statement, and marketing tool. This work is a critical source for anybody seeking to understand the martial arts of the early Republic period. It was extensively discussed by Kennedy and Go, and Paul Brennan has done the field a great service by releasing a complete translation of that particular document. You can expect excerpts of that document coming up shortly. However, you must read closely to spot any gems in this article. One of these gems occur in Part 8 in a collection of observations titled Some Ink Spillings by Chen Taixing, the group's main mouthpiece and writer. In a collection of snippets, many of which focused on social criticism of political topics. Quote, The martyr who assassinated Fu Qi was from Mei County, Guangdong. He was skilled in the Wing Chun boxing art. His son Wei Chen is now a martial arts instructor in Wu Yang Chun, which was another name for Guangzhou. End quote. We covered that short yet fascinating biography of Wen Chai in the last episode, which led him to becoming one of the four martyrs of Guangzhou. Now, while in modern discussions of Wing Chun in the martial arts, few specific facts are known, and you're going to need to listen to that episode on your own to learn about the impact that the Jingwu Association had, and it's well worth the listen. Remember that Jingwu didn't teach or promote the martial arts of Guangdong. Their curriculum was inspired by the North. The opening of Jingwu chapters in Guangzhou and Foshan wasn't received very well at all. In fact, it became a source of friction with the regional martial arts instructors as the two sides saw each other as both economic and cultural competitors. Yet and still, the Jingwu was willing to use Wen Shankai's exploits in their own attempts to polish the revolutionary credentials of the Chinese martial arts. This is the oldest published reference that we are aware of, yet it suggests that at least some basic knowledge about Wing Chun was already in the national circulation by the opening of the 1920s. Now, as we continue to move forward, that was the only direct reference of the Wing Chun during the 1919 yearbook. The volume did contain a few more hints about the Wing Chun community. For example, Wen Wei Quinn, who is the son of Shang Kai. He reappears at a particular important moment in the history of the Chinese martial arts. Specifically, his employer was a director and special guest of the aforementioned Guangzhou Jingwu Association when they opened up their southern branch. The 10-year anniversary book commemorated this occasion by reprinting some of the press coverage of the event. In an article from the China News, we read the following description of the opening ceremonies. Then it was time to begin the performances. Among the guests were Xiong Changqing's sons and daughters who performed various staff sets. Xiong family instructors, Wen Wei Quinn, son of Wen Sheng Kai, and Li Xin Cheng performing boxing and staff sets, which they are all experts in. So that we know the context a little bit better, Shang Chang Ching was a wealthy local businessman and a martial arts enthusiast who also helped to raise the funds necessary to open the Guangzhou branch. He hired Wen Wei Quinn as a private martial arts tutor for the family, and in that capacity, he and Li Xin Chang were given an opportunity to demonstrate their skills 
on opening night. Sadly, the names of the sets that they performed were not recorded. Still, for one evening, Wenwei Quinn shared the very stage with the likes of gently portrayed Wang Fei Young, who made his now legendary final public appearance at that very same demonstration. Given the questions that remain about Wen Shengkai's training, one might have legitimate concerns as to whether his son was teaching something that readers today would recognize as Wing Chun. Luckily, Shang's family reappears later in the same volume in a collection of photographs taken in Guangdong during April of 1919. This is where we're going to find two portraits. The first includes Wenwei Quinn himself on the far right, like a football team lining up or something. Everybody's lined up. Wenwei Quinn is back there on the far right, along with his employer, Shang's family, and the members of the local Jingwu group. In the second portrait, we see a number of Wen's young students engaged in two-person exercise that any modern Wing Chun student will recognize. So, the 1919 Jingwu yearbook unexpectedly leaves us with both the earliest published reference to the name Wing Chun and possibly the oldest photographic document of his practice. It also provides us with clear evidence that Wing Chun was practiced by female students from at least the early Republic period of the 1900s. Since we are discussing Wing Chun, it's important to shine a little bit more light on Long Bic. Long Bic is known as a famous, sometimes controversial figure in Wing Chun history. But the next public occurrence of the term Wing Chun shines light on this man. Wing Chun reemerged in formal print in 1926, and again it was from the Jingwu Association, but not the national publication as it was before. This occurrence was published in the local newspaper published by the association's Foshan branch. In 2016, the Foshan Wushu Association began a project looking into the various lineages present in the city. One of the researchers came across a 1926 issue of the Foshan Jingwu Monthly, containing a series of biographies. One of these biographies spoke about a father who had learned Wing Chun from Long Bic. By estimating the ages of the various individuals who were mentioned, the researcher concluded that this training occurred in about 1883. During the article, there is also a description of Wing Chun being taught in the Foshan area by a son of Long Bic. This 1926 newsletter was the earliest local publication that the Foshan research team found using the term Wing Chun. This piece is also important for another reason. Professor Junkins ran across a couple of individuals who hypothesized that Long Bic either never existed or that he never taught Wing Chun. The thought seemed to be that Ip Man fabricated his existence as a justification for either changing the techniques or attempting to shore up his lineage status. Though it should be noted that Ip Man, being a very good Confucian, never claimed any Sifu other than Chan Wa Shun. This appearance of Long Bic in the 1926 article confirms that he was indeed active in the world of Wing Chun and had taken on students prior to Ip Man. The third and last earliest appearance of the term Wing Chun occurs as it is explored as a soft style. This happens 20 years later in 1946 in a work titled 
Secrets of the Mantis-style boxing art in Hong Kong. It so happens that the author Hong was also a former Jing Wu instructor and the student of the northern branch of Mantis. The introduction to his manual reads something like the 1930s and suggests that he had been working on this piece of work for quite a while. It repeats once popular arguments about using martial arts to, quote, strengthen the nation in the face of foreign threats, but reframes them as an attack on the notion that the more popular internal styles were up to the challenge. Unsurprisingly, he concludes that what is needed is the unique blend of hard and soft found in the mantis boxing. He writes, quote, Our nation in recent years has not resigned itself to the slander of being the sick men of Asia, and we have instead endeavored to use martial arts as a remedy for the fragile physiques of our citizens. Our boxing arts are numerous and varied. I have heard many among the older generation say that these southern boxing arts emphasize hardness, whereas styles such as Wing Chun and Tai Chi emphasize softness. It is true that hardness has the stubbornness of hardness and that softness has the subtlety of softness. However, the passive and active aspects are paired together, for it is through their interactions that the universe was made, and thus qualities of hardness and softness are actually equals. Just think of the way that teeth and tongue protect each other. Therefore, boxing arts that use hardness and softness equally, such as Mantis boxing should not be casually dismissed. End quote. This is the only occurrence of the term Wing Chun in that text. It is not much of a mystery of how a man such as he would have come in contact with the Wing Chun art. He was a resident of the South and a savvy martial arts professional. He would have enjoyed some exposure to the region styles. Furthermore, when the Jingwu Association in Foshan fell on hard times in the aftermath of World War II, at least one Wing Chun instructor rented space in the halls to teach his classes. What is really critical in that Mantis work is the assumption that a Hong Kong readership would also be familiar with that style, Wing Chun. Further, he accepts a stereotype vision of the art, classifying it as an exclusively soft style such as Tai Chi Chuan. It would be pointless to debate Hong's assertions about Wing Chun's essential nature. Still, it is compelling to realize that by 1946, the Wing Chun style was well enough known that it could be used as a reference to explain other, more exotic martial arts styles. Additionally, the Wing Chun art's public reputation for softness was already fully formed by the end of World War II. These factual accounts contradict the common lineage accounts that Wing Chun was unknown outside of Foshan prior to Ip Man's 1949 arrival in Hong Kong. This was clearly not the case. The young Ip Man students in the Restaurant Workers Union may have been unfamiliar with his style, but many of their readers have both heard of Wing Chun and formulated clear ideas as to how it related to other arts, both locally and nationally.
In conclusion, Professor Duncan states that the fascinating thing about the sources which we just reviewed is that they simultaneously reflected and informed the public imagination. In a few cases, documents such as these can yield intriguing clues on the development of the Wing Chun community. For instance, we learn definitively that Lone Big took students in the final years of the 19th century. We also discovered the earliest datable photograph of Wing Chun techniques and is practiced by women. These types of documents teach us something about the society that shaped Wing Chun's early years. In 1919, this was a community that was at least aware of the existence of the Wing Chun art. By the end of World War II, the community had developed preconceptions about the system. This discussion was shaped by individuals with no actual experience in the system and had little sympathy towards it. Yet, there was a general curiosity about the style. All of this provides us a more accurate understanding of the environment that Ip Man entered when he became a professional instructor in Hong Kong in 1950. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I got um, more material already set aside and some of it's in the editing phase, so you can look for that in the next week or so to come. And then also some new recordings of some of the ancient texts that are associated with the Chinese martial arts. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me at kungfupodcast at gmail.com. This is T.W. Smith. I look forward to talking with you again real soon. Mm-hmm.